Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. On this episode, I speak with Cam Marston, the movie star, handsome and charming, expert and CEO from Generational Insights. I'm Bruce Tolgan. Welcome to The Indispensables. I have a special guest for this episode, Cam Marston, who runs Generational Insights. Uh, Cam is the author of four books. He's got 20 plus years of studying trends shaping today's workplace, today's workforce and the marketplace. Uh, his studies identify the generational preferences of each generation in today's marketplace, how best to engage them as employees and customers. Uh, Cam is an amazing guy. He's a funny guy. Uh, he and I have uh, covered the same ground, uh, uh, following after each other, chasing after the same clients. Um, and I am thrilled to say I've come to know him and, uh, uh, I've, I've always thought highly of him, but I just enjoy this man and I want people to know him better. Uh, he has a radio broadcast in Mobile, Alabama, his hometown, uh, that started as a podcast. Uh, What's Working with Cam Marston is a show that uncovers trends shaping businesses across the country. You're going to love them. Cam Marston, welcome to The Indispensables. Bruce, thank you very much. And thank you for your invitation. Uh, thank you for your compliments, my man. That's high praise coming from you. Uh, well, uh, you uh, you make an impression everywhere you go. And uh, uh, we had a meeting the other day uh, where we were a few weeks ago where we were trying to get to know Cam and everybody walked away saying, who is that guy? That guy's awesome. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, don't poach my staff, please. <laughs> I have an invaluable staff myself and uh, I recognize the need to protect them. So uh, I will honor your staff if you'll honor mine. Uh, yes, it is. It is a, a relationship of mutual honor and respect. Um, so please tell us your story, um, uh, where you come from, how you got here. How does somebody get to be Cam Marston? Well, my parents met each other, I think, in 1965. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. We won't go that far back. Um, about 20 years ago, Bruce, you and I both saw the same phenomenon going on in the workplace of a kind of a I call them a, a changing generation, a changing of the guard of the generations, different attitudes that couldn't really be understood. And I'll give you the process that led me here, and I'll keep it, you know, I like to say there's the truth, and then there's the short story, what do you want? And uh, I'm going to give you the short story, which uh, overlooks a bunch of the chapters. I first started by doing exit interviews and focus groups for my clients, and I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina at the time. And we identified through these exit interviews and these conversations with clients that there was a different motivational factor going on in the workforce that my clients, the employers, couldn't quite account for. What's going on out there was their question. And it was as we began to pull this information together that uh, Time Magazine released a report that was a front cover story on this group they were calling Generation X. 
And I read that report. I looked at the research that we were doing, realized we were talking about the same thing, and then kind of began to assemble my research in a presentation format to bring to the marketplace to say, here's what's going on in the workforce. Here's what I think I'm seeing. Are you experiencing this? And after doing that, and again, I'm, I'm going way fast through time here, a number of times the requests for those presentations began to outpace the requests of the research. So flash forward 20 years to about today, I've got a guy that does a lot of the research for me still. We continue to try to keep up the, with these trends. It's no longer Generation X that people are talking about as much. It's the millennials or Gen Z, and also the generation that's following them. And we are continue to try to uncover these trends in such a way that we can present them to our clients in a way that they can do something with them. One of the things that I try to do with each bit of research that comes through is to put handles on it. And I'm using air quotes. We put handles on it. We do something with it that our clients can understand and utilize so that they can grab it and use it. The data says this. Here's how it relates to how you interact with people. The data says this. Here's how you need to say this. And we've also worked into sales. How do we sell our product, our service to a generation of buyer that we're not exactly clear what makes them, what motivates them? So it began with a, uh, in hindsight, it looks linear, perfectly clear how this all worked out. In the midst of it though, it was chaos and fear and confusion and learning to write and learning to give presentations and all the kind of stuff that's led me to where I am today. So, and at this moment, I mean, perhaps I'm going on here, we have engaged an ad agency to say, uh, what's the future? What do we need to do going forward? Uh, what is our future going to look like? What is the marketplace going to demand from us? And they've got a research capability that hopefully when they present their findings later in the week, they'll say, Cam, here's where your expertise will prove valuable for the next 15 years and very excited to see what's next for us. So the story, I can give you a clear story to up to now, where it goes from here, we're kind of unclear about it. No doubt that the pandemic has impacted this in some way or another. Yeah. And so you've, you've got four books, you've, you've written four books, you have four children. Yeah. Is four the magic number for you? You know, uh, it's definitely the magic number when it comes to children. It's both the magic number and the final number. And uh, aside from the Archangel Gabriel visiting my wife at some point, <laughs> we're done with children. Uh, as far as books, there is a pressing need for myself to write one more. However, I don't know what it's going to be about. That's the problem. And I don't want to write another prescriptive book, which has been my, uh, my go-to for a long time. I want to do something a little bit different that's going to challenge me in a new way. I'm not sure what that is. So I would predict a fifth book, but what that topic will be, I'm unclear. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Um, so, um, you said that you're charting a future in collaboration with an advertising firm. Is that uh, something you can talk more about or is that uh, right now still top secret? No, there's no secret to it. It's uh, and, and again, we don't have the results of their research at this point. It should be a three part project. Part one is to interview those that are close to me that know the content well. So I've spent a couple hours with them. Uh, uh, Helen on my, on my team has spent time with them. Uh, my wife, believe it or not, who had strong opinions about what she thinks my talents are and where they should be utilized. They wanted to speak to her. 
And then they're speaking to clients, three or four different clients to say, what do you see in the marketplace? Why have you utilized Cam? Why have you liked him? Why have you utilized him so frequently? What does he bring that differentiates him? And uh, they're doing their own research on the marketplace outside of the interviews as well to determine what the future is and what the needs are from clients and even everything from what their prediction is of the meeting industry going forward, considering the pandemic, everybody's up in the air about that, but where uh, they feel expertise will be needed from outside, an outside expert that can both deliver in a consulting role as well as a presentation role. So what they roll out will be, again, later this week, with the uh, caveat that I have been um, no surprises, essentially. Last thing I want them to show up to do and say is, is Cam, we foresee the need of a puppeteer and you need <laughs> to learn how to deliver puppet shows and become a clown and you'll be busy at that point. I'm like, no, no, no. So it needs to be in the vein of things that we've already done, that the momentum is already leading us in this direction and they're helping us shape it. I felt like I was too close to this. I, I, I live it and breathe it every day. I needed an outside expert that has uh, an ability to evaluate marketplaces to come in and tell me what they see. And that's the value they offer. So later this week, I'll get news of what they think. And that's step one. Step two is how do we brand this? If we all agree, it needs to go forward. What does that brand need to look like? And what does it need to include? And three, uh, how do we begin to promote this thing? So that's we're on we're halfway through step one out of three right now. What I love about what you're saying is your openness to having a conversation with experts and thinking you're at a crossroads uh, and you're thinking about what to do next and you're slowing down and doing a due diligence process about your next steps. Right. That's what it sounds like. It is. It is, Bruce. And it's a difficult, and I'll be honest with you, it required, the word that comes to mind is it's required an extraordinary amount of vulnerability for me to put, I'm not exactly putting my future in someone else's hands, but I am asking someone to guide me towards my future. It's required me to be very vulnerable, to ask myself, what do you like about your current work? What do you dislike about your current work? Kim, where do you think your strengths are? Where are your values and where are they reflected in your strengths? Um, and then answering those questions and, and an expression that I heard that I like a lot, I've had to slow down to catch up with myself. And in this process, ask some difficult questions. You know, I, I have a business, I have a job, let me say it that way. And the definition between a job or the difference between a job and a business a job requires me to be somewhere to get paid. Similarly, doctors have jobs. They're not getting paid unless they're actually with patients. I have a job. And if I'm going to be in this job for the next 15 years, which is a rough number I use between now and retirement, I want to do something that really continues to stimulate and motivate me where there is a market that I can be uh, of significance. And, and by significance, I mean impactful and helpful and valuable not famous. I've given up on that. I, I chased that for a while. It was a vain chase. It was an ego-driven chase. And now my goal is to say, hey, where can I really help based on what I find important, uh, where my values are and what my skills are? Well, I love what you're saying because, you know, people 
probably ought to do that more, right? Life goes so fast and work is so uh, time consuming and so everyone's juggling and, and obligations and priorities all the time. Um, and self-reflection um, is such an important reality check for people you know you're at a you're feeling at a crossroads so you're doing it writ large in this you know really um diligent rigorous way this kind of self-check self-evaluation uh i think is something people don't do enough and uh probably people benefit from doing at any time, I mean, uh, maybe maybe it's something people should do every day. But what I love about what you're saying is you're, you're thinking about how to add value. You're saying, you know, here's what I'm good at. You know, here's what I've done. I want to ask people uh, for whom I've added value over the years. What's wh how do they think about that value? Uh, and and uh, so you know, on a sort of larger level. Uh, the process you're going through is thinking about how to add value, right? And and um, and you're doing that in a in an incredibly thorough way at what feels like a crossroads. But you know maybe people should do that more often. I find that the the, the your title of your show is the indispensables. When I come across the people in the workplace or, or, or my peers, colleagues, uh, customers, clients that are indispensable. My, and I don't ask them this question because it's a strange question, but my, my impression of them is they have an extraordinary amount of self-awareness. They know who they are and what they're good at and where they do add value. Um, and I admire that about these people. Now, when you add, when I, there are those that I talk to them about and they admit or they, they, they kind of shrug their shoulders and say, I don't see that in myself, but I do know what I'm good at. And I think that's that's it. There's a there's an amount of humility here. There's an amount of constant work of self-awareness. And uh, there's a there's a drive that once they've figured out what they like and what their values are and how what they like and their values align, they pursue that. And I want some of that. I've had it. I've sniffed it. I've tasted it in the past. But as we go through this crossroads, my team and I, I want more of it. And, and the word that I come back with, and you say it's indispensable, my word is significance. And again, it's not fame. It's where can I know? Where can I spend time with people in a business format where my, I know my time with them will be fruitful for them? And if I can find that, then everything should work out and I will enjoy pursuing it for the next 15 years. And so it leads to the question of the book. What is the book going to be about? I don't know. What is the next, uh, if I'm asked to give a speech on this next topic, what is it going to be about? I don't know. Who is the client? I don't know. And I have struggled with I don't know for a while. Now I've embraced it and said, this could be the most exciting thing I've ever gone through. Well, it, it, I think you use the term vulnerable um, and being able to be vulnerable, being able to be open about uh, doing something new, about learning uh, about yourself from uh, objective third parties, all of that, it seems really courageous to me. And um, I think you're, you've been so good at uh, understanding where young people are coming from, understanding where the shifts in generational mindset are. Uh, I, I love that you call your, uh, the, the, the name of your business is Generational Insights. Um, I often describe young people, the older I get, yeah. the more I see young people as canaries in the coal mine. Like, you know, that that's where we're all headed. 
so I do think that lens is still so powerful and so valuable. I think my clients still want insight into uh, the people around them. And in our career, you're in my career, it's been mostly about who is this youthful group entering the workforce. For a time, it was Generation X, then it was, uh, then it was the, the millennials, and now it's Gen Z. They want insight. They want to feel like they uh, understand them and uh, our ability to interpret these motivations, what we call in my team, generational preferences, has been helpful to my clients to say this uh, as I'm able to relate that relate these preferences to them. And there's no doubt, particularly as you look, let's just look at the demographics. The millennials today are 44% of the workforce is what I see. They're driving it right now. And we will all kind of go where they choose to go. Uh, in my opinion, that's what happens when you have the majority of the workforce in one age group, we kind of have to follow them. And my clients, much to their chagrin, much of the time, uh, are reluctant to admit that. However, it's the truth. Where are they going to take us? I, I, we have indications. We have, uh, you know, hunches. They may not like that, but it's part of the pill that I give them with a good bit of sugar to chase it down is, uh, this is where I think we're going. And you can object to it if you want, but you're going to find it a difficult path if you do object. Yeah. And so you're talking about uh, significance and uh, in your next chapter, um, uh, the next chapter of your career, uh, significance in, in, in what you want to focus on, what you want to bring to the table. You, you're right. I use the term indispensable. But one of the things that I, I, I like to say to people is indispensable is really in the eye of the beholder, right? Correct. To whom are you making yourself indispensable? And um, uh, so uh, this, this is, uh, I'm so uh, honored and uh, pleased to get you at this crossroad. Um, and what, what is it you think? I mean, I know that your ability to gather data and, and understand it and provide it as a useful, you say, put handles on it, uh, give insights that your clients can use. I know that's a big part of the value you add. Um, but I also uh, think of you as a person you put your character out there. You're, and I don't just mean your personality, but I mean your integrity, your values. Um, how much is that part of who you are? How, how important is that to uh, how you conduct yourself? Say something about that. I feel like, and the, the greatest, and I'm not a moralist. I'm not trying to claim any high ground, but I have to sleep on the pillow at night and rest easy that what I've done is right. And I don't know where this drive has come from that. Uh, and I think it's, I, I surround myself perhaps with similar people. And when I look for friends and colleagues, I try to find people that I think have a strong moral compass. It doesn't mean religious. It doesn't need spiritual it means nothing like that, but just a strong moral compass. And I uh, tend to you know, gravitate to people like that, and I allow them to motivate me and, and to shape me that way. I do think it's important. I do think character and integrity is important. I may define it differently than you or the other person, but I think we all kind of share a similar definition. It may not be precise, but we share a similar definition, and we know it when we find it. We know it when we see it, and I think, Bruce, my, our clients, yours and my clients, my clients I know, kind of value that in me. They know I'm going to show up and deliver the best that I can do and be prepared. And the, the, I am fortunate, as I'm sure you are, 
to have a number of repeat clients. I could look over the past 20 some odd years of business and it's probably been five or 10 clients that have kept me busiest over those years because there is a connection between the two of us in the, uh, uh, the and again, I use this word character of trying to do the right thing for this client. And I also, like I said, I, I try to surround myself with people this way. And uh, one of the guys that comes to mind is a very influential guy in our community here. He's a good bit older than me. He's had a lot of prestigious positions in the community. Very quiet, um, confident. He speaks in very measured words. And one of the values that I like about him is offering insight. He never, he will never offer advice unless it's asked for. But his insight is very cautious and measured in a lot. Of, and he's a great networker, a great connector of others. And people come to him to hear his counsel, as well as to find people that he feels uh, the connection would be of benefit to them, whether it's business-wise or whether it's personally. And he gets great joy from doing that. Now, that guy is an influencer. That guy is indispensable to our community. There are so many of us that are just um, happy to know that he's out there and at the other end of a phone call should we need it. And when I think of uh, influencers, he immediately comes to mind. His title is not that of anything great. He does, he's not president or CEO or anything like that. He's just a guy who has a genuine heartfelt concern for the friends of his and will do what he can to help them. And you know that his counsel is going to be genuine and you know that his referrals are going to be powerful as well. And I, I admire that and I reflect on that personally. Am I... Uh, kind of trying to follow this path. This is something that I can see myself doing. Is this something that I can genuinely do for other people and feel good about? And my and the answer is not complete. The answer is ongoing. And it's, I hope so. I hope I can, because he's such a great guy that I'd love to emulate him. He is truly an influential person, but not built in the model of boisterous or loud or clattering or anything but silent and full of character. And I try to, again, I find these people, I try to surround myself with them. And Helen on my team is this way. Uh, any decision she makes, I know is for the benefit of the client and others outside of ourselves. And I just don't even worry about that anymore. The guy that manages all my AV production is this way. He's a man of strong character. And we laugh and we have a great time, but I know he's always doing the right thing for me when I hire him as well as for his other clients, and I refer him wherever I possibly can. I think there's value in that, and I don't know exactly how to articulate it. Yeah, so it's what you're describing. You're describing relationships of trust and confidence. You're describing people uh, with reputation. And one of the things that puzzles me is, you know, it seems like uh, you have to play a pretty long game to develop deep relationships of trust and confidence. You have to play a pretty long game uh, if you're playing a reputation game. But that game is played, you know, one moment at a time, one interaction at a time. And I don't know if it's something you can accelerate. Sometimes people will ask me, because I often talk about playing the long game of reputation, that, you know, why would you go to this guy for advice? Because he's got a reputation for 
probably being right. Yeah. You know, that if you look back, is like, yeah, that guy was right about that. You know, you certainly you don't go to people for advice when they have a reputation for, for being wrong, you know? So it's it's a reputation for being a good person, for for putting other people's needs um, front and center when, uh, and, and, but it's also a reputation for getting things right. And I, I wonder, um, I've been asking, uh, you know, very smart and wise people, this question, is there a way to accelerate that? Because people say to me sometimes, well, what if you go in, you're dealing with new people for the first time, how do you convey that? How do you build that trust and confidence? How do you accelerate that long game of reputation? It's a good question. And, and, and one thought immediately comes to mind is people lie to be believed in the moment. They tell the truth to be believed in the future. And I think those that I've seen that have stepped into workplaces, new to the workplace or with a new workforce, that have done it well, have been very comprehensive communicators. It doesn't mean they talk a lot or long, but they are communicating a lot in, in the, the words that they choose to uh that, that they choose. Secondly, is they're not afraid to identify their own weaknesses and make those avail, uh, uh, to talk about them a little bit. You don't want to celebrate your weaknesses, but to say something along, and I'm thinking of one particular guy here uh, that I have lunch with on a regular basis, and he is what I would say is a, a man of character, a man of influence, whose people love him from everything I can see. Uh, their company was going through a very tumultuous time 18 months, 24 months ago, as they had just been bought out uh, and and uh, actually merged, and they were the lesser of the two equals in the merger. And he said, uh, what we face team, and he had the Southeastern region at the time, is an extraordinary amount of uncertainty for the next six or eight months. And I'd like to tell you exactly how this is going to end up, but I don't know. And if you're comfortable being uncertain, then you're going you're gonna to do fine through this, this integration process. If you're uncomfortable being uncertain, then I'm going to encourage you to find comfort in it, to figure out how to be comfortable in this. I'm uncomfortable in it, he said, but I got to figure out how to be comfortable in this and continue to do the job I've always done to the best of my ability as the future slowly uh, reveals itself to us. So let's all get used to being uncomfortable as we're uncertain, and then support each other when we need to. And this was him admitting he didn't know the future. He didn't know where we were going to go. He didn't know how he stood in the grand scheme of things. But he was vulnerable in that way, and his people truly appreciated that. And a part of that, Bruce, is his, I think, extraordinary self-awareness of this is how I feel. This is how they feel, probably. So let's articulate this. Let's not drown in it, but let's articulate it. And, uh, and, and, and bring this to the surface. You tell the truth so that you'll be believed in the future. He was telling the truth. And, uh, and, and he remains, in my mind, as one of the more uh, influential people in his world of this organization that I know. And I th when he told me that story, I thought there's just gems of wisdom in this. Yeah, I love it because, uh, you know, it brings together um, a lot of the themes you've already emphasized. So self-awareness, self-evaluation, uh, and beyond that, 
um, this willingness to extend vulnerability uh, without undermining your own credibility, right? He's not undermining his credibility. He's not undermining himself, but he's extending an, uh, an appropriate amount of vulnerability. Um, and I love what you said that people um, tell the truth in the moment when they want to be believed in the future. And that when people lie in the moment, it's because they just want to get past that moment. I think that's true a lot about saying yes and no to people also. Um, that when you know when you feel like you're fielding too many requests and you have too much to do and not enough time that people make the mistake of trying to get past the moment with an easy yes instead of thinking about all the implications of making a commitment that you may or may not be able to uh, follow through on you know i agree with that and i i think it's not exactly you know in the moment you may say something that you later regret it's not a lie but you may have said you may have said something that you later regret that you realize that you may have overcommitted now to go back to one of your questions i want to relate one more thing that i saw which is how do you accelerate this i'm not so sure there's a way uh, because self awareness takes time and i go back i'm i'm a big fan of really what i consider meaningful quotes to me and there's this guy that i read not long ago that said for the first 35 years of your life you learn through success for every moment after 35 years, 40 years, something like that, you learn from failure. You learn from humiliation. You learn from taking it on the chin. Hmm. So how do you accelerate that? Well, uh, if I'm under 35 years old, I look at what it takes to make me successful. And if I don't change my point of view somewhere around midlife to learn from what has gone wrong, then I afraid, I'm, in my opinion, Cam Marston sitting here in Mobile, Alabama, your ability to influence really declines as all you're able to do is talk about your successes to peers and colleagues versus your failures. When I sit down with somebody who's not admitted that things haven't gone wrong, I think this is not somebody uh, that I can learn from. So I, I think there's great value in realizing that somewhere around midway part of your life, uh, the greatest lessons that you get come from the mistakes that you've made. Yeah, that's, um, of course, uh, it's possible to make mistakes without learning from them too, probably. Oh, yeah, we see that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, although, you know, it, when people are able to use um, either mistakes or failures or partial failures as building blocks, um, it, 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 you know, I do think that's something that sets apart uh, people ultimately who have a track record of more wins than losses. It's maybe they have the same number of failures or partial failures, but somehow they're able still to use them as building blocks. Well, it's a, yeah, it, it, the, I, maybe it's Zen saying or something. There is no failure. There's only learning. And, um, you know, the, my wife is a coach. She's a high school volleyball coach and she relies on that. Yeah, we lost, but let's, let's learn from this. Let's not look at the loss. Let's look at what we'll do different next time. And every failure has got to be viewed on the, under the lens of there's needs to be a lesson here. And with learning the lesson, in my experience personally, if I can learn the lesson, I come out of that failure going, I'm a little bit better than what I used to be. Though it's a failure, I'm a little bit better now as a result of it because I now understand the lesson. If I, and I got to make sure, you know, hold, hold myself accountable to the lesson in the future. If I make the same mistakes over and over again, that's not really much to brag about. Let me drill down a little bit on the, do you have a way of in, in the moment? I mean, you're, you're in tremendous demand and you're, you're the kind of guy who, uh, wants to say yes to people. You, you, uh, want to take advantage of opportunities to 
add value, obviously. And, uh, and especially when you're in business, uh, you know, you want to say yes, when people come to you, how do you, um, make decisions about allocating your limited time and energy every day. Do you have a process for that? You know, I, I, I'll answer, I'll give you what I've learned about myself. First, there are times when I feel incredibly busy that I spend time the day before outlining the workflow of the next day. Between this time and this time, I'm going to focus on this. At this time, I take this call. After the call, I'll spend this amount of time making notes. And I'm really diligent about managing things down to 15-minute increments. And when I do that, I look at the work that I get done, and it's really significant. I'm, I'm proud of the amount of work I get done. At the same time, I don't like behaving that way. I don't like not having a spontaneous ability to focus on something that may stimulate me and provide opportunity in some sort down the road. So when I'm busy, I reduce to a very scheduled uh, way of spending my time, but I leave either a certain amount of time per day or a day later in the week, likely Friday after lunch, uh, where I can pursue the things that have captured my attention during the week and see if there's not something fruitful down that line. Uh, so it becomes a very serious allocation of, of time uh, in, in making sure I'm getting stuff done. As far as the client interaction, I can usually listen to what they're saying and respond to them. And I've learned this. I remember this guy from Hyatt years ago. He was a general manager of a Hyatt in Charlotte, North Carolina, who said, whatever they ask you, and he was talking about guest relations, whatever the guest asks you, answer with yes, and then set their expectations. Hey, uh, general manager, can you put a giraffe in my room? Yes. However, it's going to take us a long time and there are a lot of rules and holes we got to jump through and it's probably not something that's going to happen anytime soon. Now, what the guest heard was yes, but it probably isn't going to happen. So I've remembered that. When my clients ask me something that I don't think I can fulfill real well, I'm going to say yes. I think I can help you, but let me approach it this way. So I'm going to satiate their need to hear it say yes but try to manage the expectations of what it is that I can do. If they were to say to me, we'll use the silly example I gave earlier, Cam, can you put on a three-hour puppet show that will help us understand the generational differences? Yes, I'll be ready to do that in five years. <laughs> With a giraffe. With a giraffe. So what they've heard is yes, and then a serious management of the expectations. So my clients call. If I don't think I'm going to do it, I'm going to find a way to answer yes and then try to manage their expectations. If they say that's not exactly what we're looking for, I say, I understand. And I would be happy to work with you on these things down the road if you feel like they become significant to you. So it's always a yes and telling the truth of what I'm able to do with them. Yeah, I like that because, you know, I do think if, uh people have to learn when to say no, but I do think yes is where all the action is. And I think, um, the trick really is how to say yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're talking about here. How to say yes. And, um, I've had to learn it and I have to remember it in the moment as I'm hearing the client ask me for something and, uh, thinking, all right, Cam, you know, this lesson, how do you say yes and then try to manage the expectations of how you're able to accomplish this? And it's been helpful to me. And my clients have felt like I've told them the truth, believe it or not. And I have. That's my attempt. Attempt is to tell them the truth. I can do this, but it's going to take some time. 
to get it the way you need it. In the meantime, here's something I can deliver for you on the timeline you're looking for that might address some of those needs. Yeah. And, and there's something to that, like, hey, you know, puppet shows are not my specialty. Well, for you, I'd be willing to learn how to do a puppet show. <laughs> you know, I'll do that for you and bring a giraffe. But that's going to take me a while to learn to, to climb that learning curve. Now, on the other hand, you know, how much time and energy is it going to take you to learn how to do puppet shows? Right, right. I, uh, God forbid someone ever take me up on that and say, yes, Cam, send me a contract for a puppet show with a giraffe in five years. It'll be in November of, you know, 2025. Oh, goodness. It'll be $1.2 million. That's exactly right. Then we can put a price on it. $1.2 million. And that's just for the zoo. That does not include my fee. <laughs> there, there you go. Uh, Let me ask you, um, when you think about, you, you, you've already given an example of somebody um, in your community, you look up to somebody you think of as, as a, a trusted advisor. What are the common denominators you think of uh, people who, uh, I, I like to say, other people don't want to disappoint? Oh, that's a great question. You know what I mean? What makes somebody that person? You, 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 you don't want to disappoint them. Gosh, Bruce, no one's ever asked me that question before. That's a fantastic question. What are the characteristics of someone no one wants to disappoint? And I would guess, you know, having not thought through this, an influencer. I don't want to disappoint an influencer because I want an influencer to refer me just like they've referred me to other people. Therefore, I try to try to make sure I don't disappoint them. I don't want to disappoint somebody that is um, silently going about their work without drawing a lot of attention to themselves in a very meaningful way that is changing, that is, that is, uh, that is impacting the people around them, knowing that uh, the, what I'm providing them perhaps could help some of the people that they're helping, that they're a conduit for the help that I'm providing them. I guess these people that I don't want to disappoint are people that I have a such high regard for, and I want them to have high regard for me as well. And for me personally, these are people of character that are influencers in their community or in their business, and I work hard for them. They're also people, Bruce, that I think um, could give me a lot more uh, attention or advice or perhaps even business. I don't want to disappoint them. Because if I do, they may not give me the attention that I'm seeking from them in, in an effort to learn from them. I don't want to disappoint them because they have access to a lot more business. And if I do disappoint them, uh, they may not uh, allow me access to that type of stuff. So I, I don't want to in, uh, disappoint influencers. That's, that's, the, that's the conclusion I've drawn in the moment here because those influencers have a great, I, I have a great deal of opportunity to learn and gain from these influencers and that may be that may not happen if I disappoint. Them. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that. It's 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 one of the things I've been trying to untangle is how interdependency works, how mutuality works in relationships that without thinking of relationships in terms of a quid pro quo, but a mutuality of respect, mutuality of um, uh, service. Uh, and, and, and it's hard to untangle that from, you know, wanting something from somebody. Sometimes I think like, 
well, I want to impress somebody. Is that different from I want something from that person? Why do I want to impress that person? You know, what is it about that person? Uh, and um, so it's 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 a t- it's it's um it, it's not an easy question. It isn't an easy question. It's the first time I've considered it. I mean, another way to think of it is like, what is it about that makes somebody some someone you really admire? I I, I you know, and I think. Gosh knows in our political environment today, we can very clearly see that there are so many different personalities that others admire. There are personalities that are being celebrated today that I can't possibly figure out how they're admiring them. And they look at me the exact same way. So I don't know that there is a standard personality uh, that makes people admirable. I think we all appreciate work ethic. We all appreciate perceived sacrifice. We all uh, appreciate, and, and in my opinion, humility and uh, self-awareness. But there are those out there that, that represent those very same characteristics or a, an amalgam of those characteristics that, that there are plenty out there deriding right now. So I, I don't have yeah. an answer there. You know, treating people with respect and courtesy, there's so much of the old-fashioned values that somehow are out of fashion. They are out of fashion. And there's a part of me that wonders, and this is so judgmental, Bruce. Um, there's part of me that wonders about the people that, that uh, feast on breaking these others down, that wonders about if they're not compensating, and here, here dime store psychologists here, compensating for something else internally. I don't know. I don't know. There's a great, dis- I have just a, a great disappointment in our society right now. And I, if, if I was watching my social media feeds during the presidential debate, and I'm not alone in that, regardless of what side of the aisle they were on, there were a lot of people that are just disappointed with the, uh, the character of our society right now on both sides of the aisle. I, w- I won't drag you into that conversation, but I'm hearing enough to know uh, further evidence of why we're such big fans of you, Cam. Well, um, maybe so. I try not to go into that swamp very much because it can really, it, 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 it can shape my friendships and it can, it can change my attitude at any given moment. And I, you know, I like to say God first, family and friends second, America third, and, uh, and uh, at least in my order of priorities, karate fourth, by the way, baseball fifth, if you're wondering. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Let me, let, let's address that real quick. And I want to, <laughs> And I want to, here's some research we've done recently that may be of value to your listeners. And that is this, we've never seen about, I think the number that came back from Gerald, who does all my data-oriented research, is, I think he said 30%, 30% of this nation has never has no religious background. And it's the highest it's ever been. And there, you may be familiar with this term, they're called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, as in, what is your religious affiliation in a survey? And they click none. They check none. So the, the, the theory is, the hypothesis is, is a lot of the debate we're seeing, and debate is the wrong word, a lot of the social unrest we're seeing today, a result of this, let's choose the number 30%, 20 to 30% of the nuns trying to find meaning. Historically, for 20,000 years, when you get to midlife, there is a quote-unquote God-shaped hole. 
And religion has always been there in some form or another. It may have been some sort of pagan religion where you please the sun god or something, but there has been a reaction to the God-shaped hole. We know how to fill it. There's a behavior, there's a prescription that's been given to us through writings, through priests, through deities, whatever it may be. Today, there's 30% of the nation's population with a God-shaped hole who have never had any experience with religion and don't know how to fill it is the social unrest, their gravitation towards the social unrest, the fulfilling of that and saying this has meaning, this puts me in a group larger than myself, this is, has meaning outside of myself, this has meaning for my future, I will be accepted by a group in the future because of the efforts that I'm taking here. And it's a hypothesis that I've been working with. I mean, and it's, it's interesting uh, it's an interesting concept that as you watch these social unrests in the streets, are those people trying to fill a, a, a desire that for 20,000 years has been filled for with a search for God? Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, you, uh, I'm going to say checkmate. I, I feel checkmated. <laughs> <laughs> I surrender. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's an interesting, if, if you, it's an interesting debate. It's an interesting conversation that I've had with some people. And the purpose of it was how do we take this into team building? And the idea came from me from a team building guy up in Philadelphia. Uh, Cam, there is a there is a recipe here for workplace team building. If there is this God-shaped hole, we can utilize this by give people, people meaning in their work. So let's utilize this God-shaped hole to create better teams and to give them true meaning and helping their, their community, their society, their fellow man, their customer through work. This is an opportunity. We can't change it. But this is an opportunity to shape it. Ooh, I, I, I like how you brought that fully around. And it's it's interesting. I sometimes will say to people you know, who ask me, well, what do I do with somebody who has a really hard time at home, for example, a really difficult situation at home? You know, how do I how do you handle that in the workplace? And I often will say, well, make work a place that's safe, make work a place where they feel great, make work a place where they can contribute, where they can build their self-esteem, where they can find um, people who are supporting them, you know, where make work a place where they feel great. And, uh, uh, and so, you know, work can be a source of meaning, especially if it's mission-driven work, you know? Yeah, I agree. Um, all right, let me let me ask you uh, uh, my closing question, which is: um, if you were to give someone, uh, it could be an elevator pitch uh, uh, length advice. What's your advice to? I mean, I don't know how old your children are, but when you're talking to somebody, you really would give them your best advice. What's your best advice for you know? How do you get to be Cam Marston? Well. I'm not sure anybody should want to be first. <laughs> Second, um, I, 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 the word that comes to mind that I repeat, you mentioned my children. I want to contribute. I want to find ways to contribute. I want to go to the events where I'm giving presentations and not only contribute to the dialogue by giving a good presentation, but find ways to help outside of that. If the AV team needs uh, you know, uh, something, then I'm going to jump up and say, listen, I can go get you that gaffer's tape. I'm just sitting here. I try to find ways to contribute wherever I am outside in addition to what the reason I'm there. And that's what I want for my children. I want you guys, the reason you're going to school, 
the reason we are, your mother and I consistently remind you of, of these things is that one of these days, we want you to be a contributor to any group that you're in. And these are all small elements that will make you a more valuable contributor and make you understand what needs to be done in order to contribute. If someone wants to be me, uh, they've got to, you know, that's, that's a big part of it. How do I contribute? How do I go above and beyond? Uh, in the meeting planning world, Bruce, that you and I are so aware of, uh, some of the greatest expressions of thanks that I've seen from the meeting planner is when they look down and there's something going wrong and I'm able to say, listen, I can, you've asked me to do an hour's presentation. I can shorten it to 40 minutes on the fly and get you back on track. Or your speaker hasn't shown up for their 10 a.m. slot. I'm not scheduled till 1 p.m., but I'm delighted to come in and be there at 10 a.m. and give the presentation in that hole if that'll help you out. So it's flexible. It's knowing the content well enough that you can jump in and, uh, and amend the length of the presentation or the time that you're delivering at any moment to be seen as valuable, to be seen as a contributor to, to the event. And it's also, and I struggle with this, this is something I'm weak on, but trying to get better, a continuous diligence to refining the craft so that as you get there and you're asked to do what you've been hired to do, you know you're at the top of your game. Um, and it means everything from, for me, Bruce, it means making sure that the night before in the hotel, that I'm in my room uh, early and there's nobody on the convention room floor that looks up and say, yeah, we were out with that dude here in Vegas till 2 a.m. He can roll the dice pretty well. That does not <laughs> help my credibility. Right. And I've seen it happen and I've been tempted that way. Um, but it's as soon as you get on the plane and as soon until you get off the plane, you're in the zone for that client and figuring out how you can deliver the craft to the best of your ability and how you can find additional ways to contribute more than what you've been asked to do. And if you do those things, you'll, you'll be me. And I'm not best. I'm not finished. It's a work in progress. Always is. Be at the top of your game. Uh, always find a way to contribute. Try to go the extra mile. That's very good advice. Um, thank you, Cam Marston. Uh, world, you see why Cam Marston is such a rock star. Uh, you've had just a small taste of uh, this rock star. And um, Cam Marston, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate the knowledge that you're bringing to listeners like me. I listen to your show on what it takes to be indispensable. You're providing something of value. I'm grateful to be involved. Oh, thank you so much. You're so cool. In our next episode, I'll talk with the brilliant political scientist, Professor Chloe Thurston. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.